Have you heard of the story Les Miserables? It's been turned into a musical, but it was originally a very fat novel written by a Frenchman, Victor Hugo. And he had a saying, which I don't think appears in that story, I think it's from elsewhere, but that author, Victor Hugo, said this, life's greatest happiness is to know that you're loved. Now, it's just a saying by a human, but I think there's probably some truth in it. Life's greatest happiness is to know that you are loved. My aim this evening is for you to know that you are loved. Loved by God. I've been praying for this evening that the love of God will be poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And I hope that, as Victor Hugo said, that leads to happiness. But I hope it leads to something else as well. Because someone better than Victor Hugo, the Apostle Paul, he said in Ephesians 3, knowing how wide and deep and high and... Did he say long as well? I can't remember. But anyway, knowing the dimensions of the love of of Christ is the way to grow in Christian maturity. So I hope it makes us happy, and I hope it grows us in Christian maturity. We are tonight finishing a series we've been doing on the attributes of God. Attributes means characteristics of God, who he is and what he's like. And today we're finishing that series with God is Love. We're doing it topically. We're not going to be in one part of the Bible. In fact, there are loads of parts we're going to look at. I hope you'll cope with that. And you can choose whether you try to quickly flick to them or to just listen. We started this evening with 1 John 4 verse 8. God is love. And I hope you recognise there is so much to say about this that I'm only going to say a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of it. Sometimes after I've preached, people say to me, oh, you didn't say about this, or you didn't say about that. I hope you will realise this evening, there will be such a long list you could give me of things that I didn't say. This is a subject for eternity. I simply want to do it this way. I've got to choose one way, and I've chosen to do it this way. Since God is love, who does he love? Since God is love, who does he love? Now, if you've got a notice sheet, you might notice that with each answer, I want to link it to some of the attributes of God we've come across in previous weeks. By the way, you could probably link each of these answers with each of the attributes. I'm not saying this answer is with this attribute and only this one. But I just want to make some links. And I hope that this will get across that all of God's attributes are in perfect harmony. God isn't like a strange stick man. Children, have you drawn a stick man? There is like sticks, isn't he, but with a big head. God isn't all wisdom and then puny body, unable to put it into practice. Nor is he big hands and a shrunken chest, like power but lacking love. Nor is he a big heart, but feeble arms, always full of loving intention, but he can't put it into practice. God is all his attributes in beautiful proportion and harmony. And I hope a little of that will come across. So, let's get into, who does God love? Four answers to that. Here's the first one. Father, Son and Spirit love each other. 
1 John 4 verse 8 says, God is love. Now that is a strange expression. If you think about it, let's imagine a person. Let's call him Yusuf. That's good, because it's a version of Joseph. Yusuf, let's imagine Yusuf. He loves his wife, and he loves his children, and Yusuf is a good neighbour. And if you ask the people living next door to Yusuf, they'd say, oh yeah, we think Yusuf is a, is a loving person. Would they say Yusuf is love? No, that, that would be rather odd. That would seem a bit meaningless. What does it mean, God is love? Well, let's imagine again. Let's imagine God as Muslims believe in him. Now, let's go back in our minds and back and back and back in time until before there was any world. No world, no animals, no planets, no light, nothing. And there is just God. And the Muslims say, just one person. One person on his own for all eternity past. He had no one to love. Well, such a God as the Muslims believe in him, one person, he must be either, well, he's not really a person, is he? How can he be called a person? He must either be impersonal or very lonely and needy. Such a God cannot be love. Only the God who is one God in three persons can be love. Let's go to our first verse of of this sermon, John 17, verse 24. We're not going to linger on it, so you could just listen or you can turn if you like. John 17, verse 24. Father, this is Jesus praying, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world, when there was nothing, the forever past, which I really cannot understand, I don't suppose you can either, the forever past, the Father loved the Son. And John's Gospel elsewhere tells us the Son loved the Father. And 1 Corinthians tells us the Spirit has the same mind as God. So he also is love. God is three persons always, forever, loving each other. That means his love isn't because he needed anything or anyone. His love is a purer love than that. It's a self-giving love, not a needing love. And everything else we're going to hear about God's love comes from, overflows out of that three persons love of God. So there's the first answer. Who does God love? Well, Father, Son and Spirit love each other. Here's the second answer. God loves his creatures. The God who has always been love created. And we would expect such a God who's always been love to love his creatures. And we find he does. I'm going to turn to Psalm 145, and you can if you like, or just listen. You might find it interesting to turn, because there are different translations of this. I wonder which one you've got. I've got the 1984 NIV, the same as the church Bibles. Psalm 145 in that translation says, verse 13, verse 13, second half of verse 13, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. 
The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving to all he has made. Now, that last verse I just read, verse 17, I must admit there's a translation issue. So it could be translated like we've read, he's loving to all he's made. Or it could be translated, he is kind in all of his works. Or it could be translated, like I think the new NIV does, he is faithful in all he does. By the way, there's a word here, a Hebrew word, which is too rich for any English word. It can mean, it means love, and it means faithfulness, and it means kindness, and it means mercy. It's too rich for any one English word, but I think love is the best word for it. Well, whichever translation you take, I think that hopefully you can see the same point is God's love for his creation. And it's described in verse 15 and 16. In verse 15 and 16, we've got God providing for the needs of all his creatures because he loves them. You might think of Jesus in Matthew 10 saying, this loving care is even for every sparrow, which in his day, he said, was sold two for one penny in the marketplace. And yet even then, Jesus says, God's loving care extends to them. Now, this links to these attributes of God, omniscience and omnipotence. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Tim told us about them. Omniscience means God is all-knowing. Omnipotence means he's all-powerful. So, think of a Richard Attenborough programme, those nature programmes. Maybe my favourite series is Nature's Great Events. And there's one that's about the Okavango Delta. Do you know where the Okavango Delta is? It's a big plain in Botswana. And much of the year, it's dry and desert-like. But at a certain time, the birds start to fly to it. And the elephants make their journey to it. And all sorts of animals migrate to it because it floods and it provides food for thousands. And Psalm 145 is telling us, behind that and all of nature's great events and small events is not an impersonal force, is not mother nature, is not processes of evolution, but is a loving three persons. God providing for his creation. Who does God love? Father, Son and Spirit love each other. Everything flows from that. God loves his creation. But here's the third answer. God loves the world. God loves his creation, but he has a deeper love for one group in his creation. Humans made in his image. Where would you go to see that? Well, surely the most obvious verse is John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. What does it mean, the world? Well, although God does love all of his creation, here it isn't meaning planet Earth. Here it isn't meaning the natural world. Here it's meaning humanity in rebellion against God. John, consistently in his Gospel almost without exception, uses the word world to mean that. 
humanity in rebellion against God. And so the shock in John 3.16 is mainly supposed to be how deep God's love reaches. Look how bad the people are he loves. But to show that, he could also have said sinners, but he didn't. He said the world because he's also amazing us by how wide God's love reaches. To the world. The world. This love for the world then leads to an offer. How does the verse carry on? So that whoever believes in him, whoever shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever without exceptions. You can see the same love in Jesus. Well, no surprise, is it? He is the image of the invisible God. And you can see his same love in, here's a verse I really love. Matthew 23. I'll read you verse 37. You can turn if you like or just listen. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, you could quibble. Did you notice what word doesn't come up in that verse? Love. It doesn't say the word love. But if you think it's not about love, you're rather silly because I could hardly imagine a more beautiful description of love. Love that longs to welcome people, protect them, nurture them. And the remarkable thing is, it's love for people who weren't willing to receive it. God as seen in Jesus, has love for people who who resist and aren't willing to receive his love. I wonder, are you not sheltering in Jesus? If you're not sheltering in Jesus, if you're not trusting in him, if you don't know his love, he here says, and I can confidently say to you, he offers you this welcome. He says, come under my wings, experience my love. You're welcome to receive my care. I can confidently tell you that Jesus welcomes you out of God's love, which is broad as well as deep. Do you want that love? He offers to you to receive it. Now, this leads to a question you might have. I don't know if you will have, but it's a question in my mind, a question you might have, which is this. How can God love sinful people? How can pure, holy God, who is anti-sin, love sinful people? Well, someone says, that's easy, that's easy. He loves the sinner, but hates the sin. There we are, all solved, nice and easy. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Well, there is a bit of truth in that. There's a bit of truth in that, but it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Why not? Why not? Because it treats the sin and the sinner too separately. You cannot separate out the sin and the sinner as simply as that. Think of it a little like this. In the summer, my family went to a fire station open day. 
good fun. There they demonstrate dangerous things with fire. And there was this fireman in his big protective gear and his thick gloves and his helmet on and his visor, and he had a long pole. And at the end of the pole was a jar of liquid. He was going to pour it on a fire and do something dangerous. There it was at a distance. And our sin is not like that liquid in a jar. It's not as if we're holding it at the length of a broom with a load of protective gear, separate from us. It's more like this. We are like a sponge that has been soaked in sin. And it has become inseparable from us. And so God says repeatedly, he doesn't just hate the sin, but the sinner also. Did you know that? The Bible says he doesn't just hate the sin, but the sinner also. And it says it quite a few times. I'll give you two examples. One is Psalm 5. It's got this quite a lot in the Psalms, but I'll read you the first one. Psalm 5. Psalm 5 verse 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Notice that. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. Not just their sin, but them. That's not the only place. It says it several times. I'll give you an example outside the Psalms, which is quite instructive. Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. Verse 16, Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Do you see, we can't act as if our sin is like that liquid the fireman had in the beaker on the end of a pole with a load of protective gear. Because it says it's in our eyes, and it's in our tongue, and it's in our hands, and it's even in our heart, so it ends by saying God actually hates the person who does it. Because them and their sin are inseparable. Now, God hates in the sense of he is angry with, he detests, he is against the sinner, not at all in the sense of any malice or desiring harm. I think that will help us. When it says hates here, it's talking about him being angry with the sinner and he is against them and he detests their sin which is inseparable from them, not he is malicious and he desires their harm. But we still have to admit, we don't understand. We don't understand. How can God love the hateful? How can he long to welcome the detestable? And since God longs to save, why doesn't he save everyone? And the answer is, I don't know. We can't really get beyond, I don't know. And we are brought back to, Which attribute of God do you think? That he is incomprehensible. Do you remember a few weeks ago we spent an evening just having to face up to God is incomprehensible. We have to expect that. There is so much here that I don't understand. But I'm not too fazed by that. I do find it a bit of a struggle. But I'm not too fazed by it 
Because I don't expect to understand the Creator because I don't even understand myself. Do you know, I'm told that my DNA is over 60% the same as that of a banana. Yeah, my DNA is over 60% the same as a banana. But I have got a mind and a will and a voice and my skin doesn't peel off easily, thankfully. And yet my DNA is over 60% the same as a banana. I don't understand myself. How can I expect to understand the Creator? But I do know Him and He has revealed Himself. He has made Himself known as God who is love. Fourth answer. Here's the last one. We're going to spend longest on this one. God loves his chosen people. God loves his chosen people. God loves his creation. He has a deeper love for a particular part of his creation, humans. And he has a yet deeper love for some humans, his chosen people. Now, let's see the pattern first in the Old Testament. This is why we read Deuteronomy 7. And you might try to remember it, or you might like to have a look at it. I'm not going to read it again, just going to think about it. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, we read earlier. It's about the people of Israel. And it says there, in verse 6, that God chose them. Why? Was it because they were better and bigger and would give God a higher status than any other people? No, it says in verse 7, no, it's simply because he loved them. There was nothing better, nothing bigger, nothing more lovable about them. He simply loved them. And then it says, because of that love, he redeemed them. That means he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And he made them his people. That's what redeem means. He rescued them and he made them his people. And then it says, I think this is verse 9. Yes, this is verse 9 we've got to now. It says, because of that, he made a covenant with them. And it calls it a covenant of love. His promise of faithful, committed love. And so when you read about love across the Old Testament, nearly always it is this. Faithful covenant love. Committed love to his chosen people. In fact, it uses that special word that I mentioned earlier, which we can't even translate into English because it has this lovely mixture of love and mercy and kindness and faithful loyalty. By the way, the attribute of God I've got in mind here is his unchangeableness. And so he is faithful. He sticks with his people he loves. Ezekiel 16, we could have read instead, it says the same thing in a striking picture. It's just the same lesson, but it's put in a picture form. So, this is a picture, remember it's a picture. Ezekiel 16 says, God was walking in a field one day. Of course, that's picture language. And he saw a newborn baby lying screaming in the grass. And it was covered in blood. And it hadn't even had its umbilical cord uh, cut yet. It was that newborn, and it had been abandoned. Its parents were sinful, ignorant idolaters, but even they didn't want this baby. And there she was, about to die. And Ezekiel 16 says, God saw her, unlovely her, and he loved her. And he nurtured her to life. And then it says, when she grew old enough, he entered into a marriage covenant, a commitment to love her always. What an amazing picture! 
Surely if it wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't dare to picture God like that. And it's a picture of what God did for Israel. And what God did for Israel, loving, notice these, did you notice the ingredients? Loving, choosing, redeeming, giving life and entering into a covenant of love. That's very significant. I'll say that again. Did you notice what he did for Israel? Loving, choosing, redeeming, nurturing into life, giving life and entering into a covenant of love. That's real history, but it's also a picture of God saving us. So let's see it in the New Testament. Will you come with me to Ephesians chapter 1? And we see those things God did for Israel are a picture of what he does for us. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Paul's writing to Christians and he says to them, God's chosen you because of his love. It's just like with Israel. Not because you were better than others, but because for some reason he loved you. And so, just like with Israel, he redeemed us. Let's turn forward to chapter 5. So with Israel, out of love, he redeemed us. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. That's just like with Israel. They were to be God's holy people belonging to him. Jesus loved his people and he gave himself to die to bring them into loving relationship with him. And just like with Israel, out of love he brought us to life. Let's turn backwards to chapter 2. And it's all about love still. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. We were worse than the dying baby lying in the field, covered in blood. It says we were worse than that. It says we were dead, stuck in our sins, hard-heartedly anti-God, disgusting as a dead body to God. And we weren't going to change that. Ephesians 2 is so definite, we didn't do it. It's so definite. God changed that. And verse 4 says, it's because of his great love for us. And because of all that, he brought us into his covenant of unbreakable love. Where would you look to see that God's love is unbreakable? Well, there's loads of answers. I think one of the best would be Romans 8. Isn't there a good reason why so many Christians love Romans 8 and how it ends? Because it's about God's unbreakable love for us. It says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It says at the very end of the chapter, nothing will separate us. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. How can you be sure? Well, Romans 8 says, because God chose you. 
And he's not going to give up the ones he's chosen. Romans 8 says, because he didn't spare his son, but gave him up for you. And it says, the people God gave his son up for, he obviously loves immensely. He is obviously determined to save. He is obviously not going to let the death of his son go to waste. He's going to make sure they're saved. In other words, because God loved you personally, and he gave his son for you personally, and he was determined to save you personally, you could be confident in his unbreakable love for you. By the way, if some people are thinking, oh yes, but I thought you said God's love for Israel was unbreakable and look what's happened to the Jews. Hasn't that all come to an end? Well, it's very interesting that chapters 9 to 11 are all about God's love for the Jews hasn't broken and he's got big plans for them yet. So that's interesting. But we won't go off onto that one. Instead, this may help us to think about God's love. Kim and Kyle are married. But Kim is feeling like their love has got rather cool. It's cooled down. And she says to Kyle, do you love me? And Kyle says, of course I love you. I'm a Christian and the Bible tells me to love my neighbour. And I love Mrs B next door. And I love my boss at work. And I love you too, of course. Is Kim happy? Uh, No, I don't think so. She shouldn't be happy, should she? That I love my neighbour, so of course I love you. Because she wants him to love his neighbour, yes. But she wants him to have for her a personal, focused, protective, enduring love that is better than and different to his love for his neighbour. And that's what God has for his chosen people. So, Christian brothers and sisters, you can say Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Do you know it? You can say Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It says this, The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As you take the Lord's Supper a bit later, You can remember, Jesus didn't die in the vague hope somebody somewhere one day might be saved. That's not what was going on in his mind. Someone somewhere might be saved because of what I'm doing here in the year 33 AD or whatever it was. No, no. He died knowing you and loving you, giving himself for you, determined to save you. Well, I've spent this evening describing who God loves. I haven't said anything to do. I haven't said a single thing to do. I don't think I have. There are plenty of things to do about this, but they can wait. Because the first and the most important thing is to be convinced God is love. And to know that God loves you. Let's pray for that now. Lord, we praise you that you are love. Only you, no one but you, the one God in three persons, can be love. And we thank you that love has not stayed within the the glorious, beautiful Trinity, but has overflowed to all your creation. And we thank you we're not just any old part of your creation. You've made us humans, the pinnacle of your creation, uh, that you especially love. 
Please, Father, though, may everyone here know something even better than that. Your unbreakable, faithful, covenant love that endures forever and is guaranteed by giving your Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.